Women of War is recorded on Wurundjeri land. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded. This podcast contains references to sexual assault, spousal abuse and child death. It also contains some coarse language. It may not be suitable for all listeners. I'm Hannah, a PhD student writing about the history of anti-nuclear activism and Australian women in the 1950s and 1960s. And I'm Nicola, a two-time uni and PhD dropout interested in the history of masculinity and crime and World Wars 1 and 2. And welcome to Women of War, a new podcast where each episode we're going to take a look at women throughout history and how they've been involved in the traditionally masculine field of war. Of course, for most of history and even today, the majority of people involved in the actual fighting theatre of war have been men. Most societies hold men to be the warriors, but that's not a be-all, end-all rule. Some of the women we'll be looking at were involved on the battlefield as soldiers, while others were involved in capacities as varied as spies, nurses, pilots, sex workers and revolutionaries. Today, we're looking at a spy. Well, sort of a spy. There's also the question of what counts as a war. For the purposes of this project, we're counting war as either a diplomacy continued by other means fight between nation states, warring ideologies, civil wars, and what we've chosen to term frontier wars. This last one is a catch-all for wars waged by colonists, such as the British on the Native Americans, the Americans on the Native Americans, the British on the Indigenous Australian groups, and the British on the Maori in New Zealand. What about the Dutch? Yes, and the British war against the Dutch. The Dutch against various African nations and everything they stole off the Portuguese. Honestly, I think the Dutch are the number one imperial power who sort of get away with it, historically speaking. Why are you hating on the Dutch today? You know why I'm hating on the Dutch today. Yeah, yeah, but dramatic effect. Okay, so the reason I speak of the Dutch is because of one rather complex woman caught up in what was once thought to be the Great War, the War to End All Wars, which of course was not the War to End All Wars. World War One. Spoiler alert. <laughs> the lady we are focusing on this week is Marta Hari, the, with a capital T, femme fatale, the iconic female spy, the sexiest lady in Europe, who led to the death of 50,000 French soldiers, Jeunesse, and the all-encompassing defeat of France in World War One, from which they have never recovered. Didn't France win World War I? It's funny you should say that. They did. It's almost like everything we think we know about Marta Hari is false. What do you think of when I ask you about Marta Hari? I feel like I need to preface this by saying I am a proper historian and I know what I'm talking about. Mm. But Charmed and the episode of Charmed when Phoebe was possessed by the karma of Marta Hari, lost all her clothes and then ran around in a bikini thing getting retribution against men who wronged her. I don't even know what to say. You're doing a PhD. Which means I know what I'm talking about. Yes. Um, well, Charmed is usually the most historically accurate show one could ask for, but that episode seems to be way off the mark. So was 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 she, like, possessed by Matahari herself? It was like Matahari's karma. So some dude tried to do a spell to get rid of his bad karma and it accidentally summoned the karma of Matahari, which was looking for a person to take over and found Phoebe. Because Phoebe was also, I think she was mad at a man as well, and so Matahari was like, "That one, I that want does that sound one." Like charmed, well, I remember and so she, charmed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she kind of goes on a bit of a escapade, turning men into pigs and whatnot, um, and then doing the scarf dance. But 
I feel like I'm getting ahead of myself now with the I I, I feel Hari. like we're getting completely irrelevant to be honest. Um How dare you? So when one brings up Matahari, it conjures images of a beautiful, exotic beauty, a woman from the Far East who I don't think you can say the Far East. It was the Far East in 1917. And that was how Matahari presented herself, a woman of the Orient who performed sexual sacred temple dances for Europe's rich and powerful. This stuff blew the Europeans away with its inherent eroticism. Her beauty and costumes were said to bewitch the eye and ensnare the senses. The name Matahari even means Eye of the Sun in Malay. While her name might be Malay, Matahari was certainly not. Matahari was born Margarita Gertruda Zelle in Friesland, the kingdom of the Netherlands. Jesus Christ, we're not referring to her as that the entire time, are we? I mean, you're the one that gave me that bit of the script. Yeah, Margarita Gertruda Zelle of the Nederlande. Some people call her Margie, but others termed her Geta. I, I like Geta. I like Geta. Well, let's go with Geta then. Geta it is. So, Geta was born in Friesland in 1876 to Adam and Anchi Zelle, who had twin sons. Her father was a failed speculator in oil shares and hat salesman who eventually ditched the family to go to The Hague when Gieta was a young teenager. Gieta's mother, Antje, died when Gieta was 15 and she was subsequently sent to live with relatives. From a young age, Gieta was noted to look a little different to the average Dutch girl. She had more olive-toned skin and dark hair compared to the pale blonde girls in her area. I do wonder if this has been exaggerated over time as part of her myth. Like, women in my family have a habit of marrying Dutch men and they've all been dark-haired, dark-eyed, olive-skinned and seven feet tall. You are a giant. Yeah, but I'm not Dutch, so we just marry the Dutch. So, Geta was a looker, regardless, and around the age of 16, she began training to be a teacher at a college in the Netherlands. She left when it was found out she had an affair with the headmaster and was expelled. But I thought it was more likely that this gross old man went after her and she was later blamed for whatever he did. Oh, 100%. I mean, it also fits with the myth of her in later life as this sort of irresistible temptress. I mean, a 16-year-old girl can't have an affair with a grown man. It's grooming and it's assault. Yeah, it's disgusting. Gitta left Friesland and headed for The Hague. The Hague is the seat of the Netherlands government and so it was the place to be if you wanted to ent- entertainment in the Netherlands. Once she was in the city, she lived with her uncle. Turns out, though, Netherlands in 1890-something, even The Hague, is just as boring as it sounds. Gieta decided to spice up her life. Colour to the world, spice up your life, and the people in the world, spice up your life. Probably not like the Spice Girls, though. You can't see me shaking my head. Well, I, I, I have no words. Spice okay. Girls for life. All right. What did Gieta do? <laughs> she got married. She performed like the Spice Girls, but she didn't. And she began looking through the Lonely Hearts ads in the newspapers to get married. I stuffed so, that up. <laughs> uh, whatever. So the Tinder of the Industrial Age, basically. Through ye old okayist Cupid, 18-year-old Gieta made contact with Rudolf John MacLeod, a Dutch East Indies officer who was 20 years older than her. We're going to call him John. And again, he was twice her age, which is nasty. They were married within six months. He sounds like a good dude. Oh, I'm sure he was an absolute catch. I'm sure we won't find out anything bad about him. So Gieta probably should have There's wondered. no reason at all why he would be on Cupid at this age. It's fine. Yeah, no reason at all. Now, Gerda probably should have asked herself these questions, and unfortunately she was going to find out the hard way. So where were the Dutch East Indies? They're modern-day Indonesia. The region was pillaged for spices. This is what I mean, though. The Dutch get away with it because they weren't the first Europeans there. The Portuguese were the first to invade and colonise the area. 
uh, and then the Dutch took over afterwards. The Dutch get primarily remembered for what they did to South Africa, including giving the world Elon Musk, along with countless other crimes. And then the British took South Africa from the Dutch. See what I mean? Yeah, okay, I get your point now. So, MacLeod had returned to the Netherlands due to illness and being on leave. Chances are at least one of the illnesses he had was syphilis, or another sexually transmitted infection. This didn't come up at first, but cracks almost immediately appeared in the MacLeod's marriage. I have no idea why. It's a mystery. (laughs) Within a fortnight of returning to their honeymoon, John was seeing other women, and though at first Goethe had no idea, she soon picked up what was going on. Oh, he's the worst. MacLeod had probably picked up syphilis in the Dutch East Indies. It was very common over there for soldiers, especially the officers, to take on a native-born woman as a mistress slash housekeeper. It was an open secret, and there were many mixed-race children running around. MacLeod wasn't unusual, and he did keep a woman in his quarters when he originally was in the Dutch East Indies. When officers returned to Europe, they would... Yep, very classy. When officers returned to Europe, they would often leave the woman and any resulting children behind. Again, MacLeod was no different here. Soon after their marriage, the MacLeods set sail for the Dutch East Indies. On the way there, Geerta gave birth to a son, who she named Norman John. It was also on this trip that things got worse for the young family. As far as we can tell, Norman was born with congenital syphilis, which he would have to have contracted from his mother. And as Goethe's only known sexual partner at that point had been her husband... He gave her syphilis. And this was at a time when syphilis was more or less incurable. John's so nasty, no wonder he was on yield Tinder at the age of 40. By the time they arrived in Indonesia, the marriage was in serious trouble. Which was symbolised with the syphilis he gave her. That said, if John had tertiary syphilis, it might explain why he was such an arsehole due to the cognitive effects on the brain. Yeah, but I feel like maybe it's the other way around. Like you're an arsehole and so you go out and you have lots of extramarital sex and then you get syphilis. Like yeah, maybe well, it's, it's a vicious a, cycle. It's a cycle. Arsehole to syphilis to arsehole. Oh, God. Syphilis. Syphilitic arseholes. I've – yeah, anyway – Hasn't Danielle told you about the syphilitic assholes? The syphilitic assholes, no. Syphilitic who are the syphilitic assholes? They're just people who get syphilis in their assholes. Well, that's concerning, and yeah, I don't want to um, Google. Let me search that. Yeah, don't Google it. But it's interesting. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> okay, so John moving on. was an al- um John was also an alcoholic and regularly physically abused Goethe. But as far as I'm aware, he was still an asshole. He was still an asshole. Once they arrived to the Dutch East Indies, John took on a concubine, which he argued was normal for the region. But, you know, dick move. Always talk to your partner before opening up the relationship. (laughs) Geerta also gave birth to their second child, a girl named Louise Jean. It's thought Louise was also born with congenital syphilis. John and Geerta's marriage quickly deteriorated over the four years they spent together in Indonesia, living in various garrisons. They were both unfaithful and John's physical abuse of Geerta worsened. Things got even worse when Norman died, apparently poisoned by his nanny. Goodbye, Norman. Louise Jean was poisoned too. Though I never knew you at all, you had the grace to hold yourself. All right. When those around you fall, they crawled out of the. No, stop. No more Elton John. Okay. Louise Jean was poisoned too and became gravely ill but recovered. So, what was wrong with the nanny? What's going on here? Well, she was working in a bridal shop down in Flushing, Queens, when her boyfriend kicked her out in one of those crushing oh scenes. Oh, my God, I hate you. 
Okay, so the nanny of the the um, McLeod children. So the, there's been some theories about it. So they had treatments for syphilis even in the 1900s, and the family's doctor probably tried to treat the kids, but he might have been used to treating grown men, and people think he might have overdosed the kids. And if he dosed adult women lower than adult men, Louise might have gotten less of the mercury or whatever he was giving his medicine. Okay, so the nanny was probably in charge of giving the kids medicine and yeah. therefore it's kind of, it, it looked like it was her fault. Yeah, and like, you know, yeah, it's fucked. It's a fucked up situation. We'll never know. Always blame the help. We'll never know, but yeah, always blame the help and um, we'll just never know. And that was the main. That Don't was give the, people mercury. That was the main theory I found and like that's the one I liked the most. That makes sense to me. Like it's logical there. The nanny isn't just murdering people for shits. And gigs. Okay. While in Indonesia, Geta did briefly ditch McLeod. Good for her. Yeah, for another Dutchman, though. She can do better. Geta also got very interested in studying Indonesian traditions, including the dances and local languages. She did return to McLeod, ungood for her, and his physical abuse of her became even more extreme, and he even hit her with a cat of nine tails. Oh, fuck that guy. Does he die a horrible death? He better die. Uh, he does not. He died at 72 in his own bed, and even though it's common for syphilis sufferers to have their nose fall off, his nose remained intact. Um, so eventually the McLeods returned to the Netherlands. They lived back with McLeod's sister for less than a month and were miserable. McLeod took Louise one night and moved in with friends, and so Gieta applied for a divorce. McLeod didn't contest the divorce, probably because neither of them could afford it, but that didn't stop them slagging each other off. McLeod also withheld money from Goethe in the hopes of forcing her back to him. She begged her family for money to get through the divorce and even entertained some men to make extra cash. She also manipulated McLeod into sending her money, but she was so clearly checked out of the marriage at this point, which, I mean, girl, I feel you. Yeah. In 1902, somehow Goethe and McLeod came to a deal. She would get her divorce, but McLeod would keep Louise Jean with the addendum that Goethe would never see Louise Jean again. McLeod, a pillar of society, felt that Geta was a bad influence on their daughter. Yes, she is the bad influence. She so is. In search of a new life and income sources, Goethe took herself off to Paris, where she supported herself through various positions. These included working as a piano tutor, a ladies' companion, and a department store model. She also worked as a more lucrative but less respectable artist model, and eventually turned to sex work to make ends meet. She wrote to her cousin and admitted she was ashamed that she had to do it, but that was the reality for single women in this period of history. Or really, I mean, most periods of history. Yeah. (laughs) Eventually, Gieta got a job with the Parisian Theatre Company as a dancer, and it was here she finished reinventing herself as Marta Hari, claiming she was from the Far East, a Javanese princess, and she performed incredibly sexually charged dances. She claimed to have deep spiritual significance to Far Eastern cultures. It wasn't exactly unusual to do this at the time. Many entertainers from this period and beyond claimed they had different backgrounds to give themselves either an interesting backstory or one with less scandal. Actress Mill Oberon, for example, born in 1911 in India, claimed to be from Tasmania to hide the fact she was born illegitimately and of Indian Maori Eurasian heritage. But why Tasmania? Like, if, you, if you're going to reinvent yourself from anywhere in the world, I don't know. Marta Hari first appeared around 1902, but made her grand debut in 1905, dancing at the Musée Guillaume, which was and is the main museum of Asian history and art in Paris. And they clearly do not do background checks. They need to change curators. I mean, I feel like they may have since 1905. We both know there's so few jobs in the museum industry. It's probably the same guy. 
Yeah, look, that's fair. Word about Matahari and her dancers quickly spread far and wide, and photographs were actually taken and used by her ex-husband in order to support his right to have custody of their daughter. Such a classy dude. So, wait, what did happen to Louise? So, Gyota really saw her daughter after the separation, and Gyota's cousin acted as the intermediary between John and Gyota after the divorce. Gyota kept in contact with Louise via letters, um, but she died soon after her mum at the age of 21 of complications from her inherited syphilis. Uh, Louise had been preparing to sail to the Dutch East Indies as a school teacher. That's so sad. Mm. For Gyota, after her Musée Gourmet debut, word quickly spread about the mysterious and alluring Matahari and her erotic exotic dances. She would dance, casting aside silky scarves that supposedly represented different spiritual ideas, and slowly remove all her clothes except her bejeweled bra and sometimes her headdress and bracelets. Apparently she didn't like to take off her bra because she had small boobs and was embarrassed. Embrace your small titties, everybody. Matahari danced in all of Europe's cultural capitals, London, Paris, Madrid, Berlin, Glasgow, or something. Glasgow? Glasgow. I feel like it's a bit cold to take your clothes off in Glasgow. But then I suppose she probably was dancing in places that had heating. So run around naked. It's fine. Always. So, um, and with dancing for Europe's rich and famous, she also, Matahari, also took on, well, it's hard to say, lovers or clients. In some cases, they were both. Due to the time period and language barriers, we don't exactly have the information that means we can make that call. Some of Matahari's men, such as the secretary to a powerful French minister, knew her for over a decade and publicly defended her. We don't want to completely rob Gieta of her agency and paint her as some waif drifting from man to man, nor do we want to make out that she's some kind of sexually powerful fiend who collected powerful men like toys. Was she an escort, a sex worker, a femme fatale? It depends on who you ask. Even Gieta swapped what she called these men. Sometimes she was their mistress or their lover, which is a word I hate, but it all depended on context. Taylor Swift loves the word lover. Oh, fuck off. I like Taylor Swift. I just hate the word lover. It's a whole story. I'm not going to go into it. She entered relationships and made contacts with some of Europe's wealthiest and most powerful men, both from the nobility and men who'd made their fortunes on their own. As time wore on and Gieta got older, other dancers began to copy her act, rude, and she felt she was getting too old for the exotic dancer game. And so she reinvented herself as a courtesan. We love an innovative woman. She'd already been working partially in this role, but by 1910 she transitioned away from dancing to courtesan work full-time. And it's around this time that we should probably be calling her Matahari, do you reckon? That's a good question. Matahari, Margarita Zelle, towards the end of her life, wrote, quote... I'm going to forgive your accent. Mm-hmm. Quote, Take into consideration it is that Matahari and Madame Zelle McLeod are two completely different women. This is way too Russian. I'm going to start that again. <laughs> This is very Russian. This is not French. We love the Russian ballet. <laughs> All right. In the Soviet Union, uh, they dance for you. What the fuck does a Dutch person sound like? Take into consideration, it is that... Fuck me, I can't do this. Hang on. <laughs> Take into consideration, it is that Matahari and Madame Zelly McLeod are two completely different women. Because of the war, I am obliged... Now to you're going South African. Africa. Yeah, it's fucking close enough. I'm going to set. Hang on. Can we go from. I'm going to go from my line before the quote. That's a good question. Matahari Margarita Zelle, towards the end of her life, wrote, quote, 
I'm going to forgive your accent in advance, I think. Yeah, um, I can't do Dutch, but I can do South African. So take into consideration, it is that Marta Hari and Madame Zelie McLeod are two completely different women. Because of the war, I am obliged to live under and to sign the name of Zelie, but this woman is unknown to the public. I consider myself to be Marta Hari. For 12 years, I have lived under this name. I am known in all the countries and have connections everywhere. That which is permitted to Marta Hari, dancer, is certainly not permitted to Madame Zelie McLeod. That which happens to Matahari, they are the events which do not happen to Madame Zelie. The people who address one do not address the other. End quote. So. I feel like that was like Matahari's South African bogan Australian I never said child. it wasn't. That's fair. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Okay. So the point is, it sounds like she'd like to be Matahari. That was her public persona. So even though her arrest warrant was under her birth name. Spoilers. She was executed under her birth name. Spoilers. She was executed for being Matahari. Spoilers. Oops, that's why my hair is so big. It's full of secrets. Matahari was well set up to be a courtesan. She was well-travelled and a polyglot, speaking at least Dutch, French, German, Italian, English, and you've got to assume a bit of Indonesian. She was this polyglot dancer with a supposedly amazing exotic life. Apparently Matahari was an exceptionally charming woman and a great conversationalist. She took on many clients in cities across Europe, including multiple men in high stations in various European militaries. It's truly amazing, though, that she was held as the immoral one when a lot of her clients were married. She's got magic tits, you see. How are these poor weak men meant to control themselves with their magic glittery titties? Just one amazing bejeweled bra. I wonder if she'd vajazzle if she was around today. God, I hope not. A bejeweled bra sounds very uncomfortable anyway. Hmm. It was around this point that international relations in Europe had reached high rates of tension, as an entanglement of agreements and treaties in the Balkan states left Europe's great powers divided into two major groups, the Entente of Great Britain, France and the Russian Empire, May it last a thousand years, and the Triple Alliance of German, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, May it also last a thousand years, and Italy. Aren't you the World War I expert here? Yes, my apologies. This is my time to shine. Okay, the conditions... Oh, I just hit my head on the um on the cupboard door. Don't do that. My time to shine. Okay. My time to shine. The conditions all sides fought on in World War One were appalling. Mud, snow, ice, heat, filth, no matter where you were. Trench foot, frostbite, shit food, shit conditions, no matter what front you were on. It was cruel and inhumane and just awful. I'm foreshadowing things about the French army in 1917. Yeah, but what does that have to do with Matahari? Foreshadow her. You'll see. Fine. So, Matahari was from the Netherlands, which was technically neutral during the Great War. Smart move. Netherlands neutrality meant she had a lot more freedom of movement than the citizen of a belligerent European nation. Her perceived excesses in a time of shortages in France also made her unpopular in the eyes of French people, who had a habit of beheading people who were excessive in a time of shortages. They have been out of that habit for a very long time now. I have to stand up to you on behalf of the French. Well, look, it's a valid habit. I, I, I'm not criticising this habit. I think it's sensible. Oh, okay, never mind then. Carry Eat on. the rich. Carry on. But Matahari didn't care about what the French people thought of her. Why? <gasps> because she was in love. Aww. She had a lover. Aww, her favourite word, off. a lover. Matahari had fallen for Captain Vladimir Dimashlov, a decorated Russian soldier who was fighting for the French. At the start of the war, the then Russian Empire, may have lost a thousand years, had bragged about its near-unlimited reserves of troops. And near unlimited troops, sure they were, but, you know, good soldiers? Not necessarily. 
The French government had asked their then ally, the Russians, to send over a couple of Russian soldiers to boost their own numbers. They sent around a thousand men, and I believe Captain Vladimir Dimaslov was one of them. Are you picturing Dimitri from Anastasia too? Maybe they went to the Russian ballet together. Good, oh, oh. yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen Anastasia in a really long oh, time. I, I watch it like once every six months. Anyway, continue. Now, now I want to watch it. Actually, the musical, the live-action musical, brings in communism. communism. It's fab. Yeah, there's no Rasputin, which is a shame because my one of my dream on-stage roles is Rasputin in Anastasia. You would be an excellent Rasputin. Thank you. Or I could just go to the Russian ballet. Yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. Da. During his time at the front, Demaslov was exposed to phosphine gas, one of many horrible chemical weapons used on the front during World War One. He lost partial vision in one eye and was in danger of going blind. Regardless, he proposed to Matahari and she accepted. She also wanted to take him in Vital to Intervital in France for his health, because they had natural springs with supposed health benefits there. Do you think she really loved him? I do. I mean, like, he was the half-blind Russian soldier when she'd been with some of the richest men in Europe, so surely she did. And he looks like Dimitri from Anastasia. Um, the guy who played him in the Garbo film, Ramon Navarro, was a slice as well. Anyway, so Victor's in a hospital somewhere, by the way, near the front. So Marta Hari's like to her friends, I want to take Victor to Vidal to make his eyes better. How can I do that? So she goes to one of her ex-lovers slash clients, John Allah, and she's like, I want to take Victor to Vidal to make his eyes better. How can I do that? And Allah worked for the War Department, but also for the Dujem Bureau. The Dujem Bureau? Oui, la Dujem Bureau. Their external military spy agency. Mm-hmm. The French equivalent of the Secret Service, or MI5, up until France fell to the Nazis in 1940. Spoilers for World War II! We're going to call it the French Secret Service from here on in. Matahari goes to Hulure, who is more or less an agent for the French Secret Service, and she says, I want to take Victor... Did you put that in three times deliberately? (laughs) She asks how she can take her Russian fiancé to this French city, and Hulure says... Oh, I know some people who might be able to help with that beautiful polygot lava of wealthy, influential men across the continent. I don't know what that was. So Hulur sends her to 282 Boulevard Saint-Germain, where the French Secret Service was housed. There, the head of the French Secret Service, Georges Ladoux, and his agents were like, Oh, you want to take Victor to Videl, blah, 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 blah. Ladoux and his agents say that if Matahari spies for France, she could visit Victor in hospital and she would receive a reward of one million francs. The million francs is important in case Victor's family disowned him for marrying a woman of Matahari's reputation. It's wild. We're already in World War One. We've done the Somme. The Hindenburg Line. Gallipoli's wrapped up. Like, the first half of the war is over with all those iconic moments of horror. And only now is Matahari, the most infamous spy of this period, actually becoming a spy. Over the next while, Ladoux and Matahari met repeatedly in Paris. You might think this would involve her getting spy training, instructions, missions, money and supplies, perhaps learning a code or two. Goethe got nothing. Ladoux never gave her a specific mission nor target for seduction, and he never gave her any money or a way to contact him. All he said was, get on a boat to the Hague, but travel there via Spain. It's a direct quote. Well, he said it in French. After all these meetings and sort of hanging around in Paris, Matahari finally cracked and wrote to Ladoux and asked him for an advance on her award to get some new clothes to help with her seductions. Don't you need no clothes for seduction? It's all about the taking off of the clothes. Showing the bejeweled bra. It's about revealing the bejeweled bra. Show one jewel. 
One, one, one little emerald one at a time. One little emerald on your nip knop, yep. Off to Spain she went. Once there, Matahari boarded another ship for The Hague, but it stopped on the way at British port. Matahari on a ferry attracted some attention, but not for the reasons you might suspect. She was wearing her bejeweled bra on the outside. I don't, I don't think she would. You, if you fell in the water, that's not good for floating. That's very true. That's true. Matahari actually resembled a known German spy, codenamed Clara Benedice, and so guards took her off the boat and to London in order to ascertain whether she was this German spy spying for the Germans or a Dutch woman spying for France. Gerta was in- detained and interrogated, and as she'd not had any training by Ledoux, she cracked and admitted she was a French agent and told the British to contact their allies to confirm this. The British reached out to Ledoux, who said, I have never heard of this woman in my life. Send her to back to Spain. And back to Spain, Matahari was sent. She ended up in Madrid, and honestly, she did something pretty cool there. She went, I've been hired by the Deuxième Bureau. I am a spy. I am going to do my best to get my reward and get Victor better. So she went out and she seduced the German diplomat, Major Arnold von Kalle. She picked her target super well. Von Kalle knew stuff, and he was willing to share it. He revealed that there would soon be a landing of German officers, Ottoman troops, and munitions from a submarine off the coast of Morocco. Matahari wrote to Ledoux with these revelations. During this time, she was also asked to spy for the Russians by the Dutch consul, and she just kind of ignored that request. Makes sense. Uh, Meanwhile, in London, British agents discussed this woman who had been in their custody. They reflected that though she seemed genuine, they were wondering about Ledoux's intentions towards her. They eventually reported that Ledoux seemingly suspected Matahari for some time, and so he had pretended to employ her in order to see if she was working for the Entente. They wrote, quote, He will be happy to hear that her guilt had been established. In short, they were wondering if Ledoux was trying to set Matahari up. Back in Spain, Matahari hadn't heard back from Ledoux regarding the intelligence she'd received from Kalle, the German diplomat. So she did what she knew best. She began to see Colonel Joseph Devin of the French Diplomatic Corps. He was a very jealous man and questioned her about her other relationship with Kale. And so Matahari revealed she was a spy for the French and was actually using Kale to get information. Devin was relieved and pressed her to get more information for the French war effort. Unfortunately, she went too hard on Kale and raised his suspicions. As Devine was going back to Paris, Matahari wrote a detailed letter to Ledoux, giving him all the information she had uncovered, and gave it to Devine to give to Ledoux and the French Secret Service. But what had Ledoux been up to? After flat out lying to the British, which is peak French, Ledoux ordered all messages between Madrid and Berlin to be intercepted via a listening post on the Eiffel Tower. That is peak French. That is peak French. No messages regarding Matahari were noted through December and January from 1916 to 1917. Matahari grew tired of Spain and decided to head back to France in hope of claiming her reward and seeing Victor again. She hadn't heard from him for a few months and was worried he was wounded, or worse, dead. By January, she was in Paris. There she went to the Duzem Bureau and asked to see Ledoux. There she was told they'd not heard from Denvines and his status was unknown. She asked Ledoux for her million francs and he dismissed her. Matahari went to a hotel and spent the next few weeks moving from hotel to hotel as she ran low on funds. Unbeknownst to her, the entire time she was being followed by agents of the Duzem Bureau, hopefully wearing trench coats. I certainly hope they were wearing trench coats as well and like two really short spies were on each other's shoulders. With a little fake moustache like the plastic one and it's really shiny. It looks very fake. Uh- 
Well, I'd say yes, but they're French, so they obviously already have. Yeah, but you got to put the fake mustache over the real mustache. mustache. Of course, my because that's the disguise. If it's your if it's your real mustache, that's not a disguise. If it's a fake mustache, that's a disguise. Very, very true. A disguise. All right. On the 12th of February, 1917, a warrant for Matahari, a.k.a. Margareta Gertrude Zelli's arrest was issued on the grounds of her being a German spy. She was arrested the following day and taken to a prison in Saint-Lazare, Paris. There, she was interrogated by Pierre Bouchardon, who was reportedly an unmerciful misogynist who hated women in control of their own sexuality. I say reportedly, it's all in his diaries. Guetta, when she was given access to a lawyer, was forced to hire a former lover-slash-client, Edouard Clunet. He wasn't given good access to her and was inexperienced with military courts and trials. Do not ask me for more information on the French legal system. Well, now I want more information on the French legal system. The last time your favourite thing, the guillotine, was used in France in an execution was 1977, the same year Star Wars first came out. That's legit. I have no other information that doesn't involve people getting beheaded. I feel like I don't want it out there that a guillotine is my favourite thing. That's well, that's not good. It's like your favourite method watch, of execution. I don't know. Do I have a favourite method of execution? I suppose I do like... I feel like guillotine's a pretty good I'm one. I'm a firing squad fan. Not in like a like death penalty kind of way. Just like, let's go somewhere else with this conversation. Firing squad requires, requires people to be good aims. Guillotine, it's just... Shoot straight, you bastards. Don't make a mess of it. Yeah. So Matahari was <laughs> imprisoned in Saint-Lazare for three months. The prison was full of fleas and rats. She didn't have access to soap, clean clothes. She had no money, stamps or paper which meant she couldn't contact the outside world. She was racked with anxiety. Girl, same. It transpired that Victor was alive, and he wrote to her. Unfortunately, these letters were also withheld from Matahari, which was a dick move by the French legal system. Yes, it was. Matahari's trial began July 24th, 1917. There were eight charges laid against her, but all of these were very vaguely worded, and the prosecution mostly attacked her for her lifestyle. Some of the evidence was even just the logs from the spies who tailed her, detailing her extravagant spending. And what else are you going to do in Paris? Eat a lot of cheese. You do that in Australia. Yeah, that's true. But what was happening in the world outside Paris? 1917 was a very rough time for all sides in the Great War. I mean, it had been a bit shit since when the war hadn't been over by Christmas 1914, but this was the third year of the war. Hundreds of thousands of soldiers had died or been injured. Homes and woods and farms had been obliterated, and it all seemed for nothing. After the initial excitement of chasing the Germans back to what ended up being the superbly engineered Hindenburg line, morale in Allied forces had plummeted. The French especially were seeing huge casualties and their homeland was being bombed to feck. French General Nivelle, along with the British, organised a huge plan to break German lines, thus bringing a victory and a morale boost. The French soldiers were pumped. They were using an ultra-modern, effective new technique called a creeping barrage. I'm going to let you finish, but did Matahari invent the creeping barrage? Is that a subtle hint to move along? I don't think it was subtle. So this offensive, the Second Battle of the Ain, was a massive failure. It saw mass casualties on both sides and triggered a series of mutinies and desertions amongst first the frontline French troops. Then it spread amongst the rear, and there were revolts in dozens of divisions, primarily in the infantry, because they were usually the meat that met the metal. Nivelle was stood down, and a new general, Henri-Philippe Peton, was placed in charge. I just like saying his name. In World War One, anyway. It's a good name. There were mass arrests, mass trials, and about 50 executions. Peton wasn't bad 
all over, though, at this point in history. In a John Monash-style concession to the troops, Pétain also introduced more troop rotation and longer leave to help raise morale. I mean, that probably helps more than a bullet to the head. (laughs) Or a guillotine to the neck. Morale was also lifted when the Americans officially ended the war in April 1917. That would take them nearly a year to get the American troops up to scratch and ready to fight in this new kind of industrialised warfare. Amazingly, the Americans didn't just wander in until they were ready and given the information they needed. Sounds like they might need to learn from the past. So things didn't really return to the nebulous normal of the war until early 1918. And so some argue that in the face of a huge, embarrassing failed offensive a la the Somme, not to mention the continued stalemates on the Western Front, Matahari's trial and execution was actually an attempt to raise morale. They had to scapegoat someone, both for the loss of French life and the disastrous levels of morale in the French army, probably caused by, you know, the mass loss of French life, as opposed to one sexy lady in a bejeweled bra. So, back to the trial. The key piece of evidence was a few messages intercepted by the Eiffel Tower listening posts in December 1916 and January 1917. But wait, Nicola, didn't earlier you say that no messages regarding Matahari were intercepted during that period? Yes, Hannah. Ledoux only produced these messages in April 1917, once they'd been translated and decoded. Oh, but surely they could have looked at the originals and retranslated and redecoded them to check they were genuine. Oh, yes, but strangely, the originals had vanished. The only known copies were the ones Ledoux gave to the prosecutor, which sealed Matahari's fate. So strange. So strange. It's a mystery. With a lawyer with limited access and experience in military trials, an all-male military jury, a known misogynist as the prosecution, and all in a society that looked down upon quote-unquote deviant women, Matahari never stood a chance. Clunet, her lawyer, did try, and he produced many eminent men who had been involved with Matahari, including the secretary to the French Foreign Affairs Minister. The secretary, Henri de Magali, had known her since 1905, defended Matahari fiercely and accused the prosecutor of accepting a case he knew was false. But it didn't work. Matahari, Marguerite Gertrude Zelle, was convicted on all eight accounts and sentenced to death by firing squad. On the 15th of October 1917, accompanied by a priest and a nun, Gieta was taken outside and tied to a post. She was offered a blindfold but refused, choosing to look upon the men who would kill her. That morning, she was fired on by the men of the 4th Regiment of Zouave and the Sergeant Major of the 23rd Dragoons, who also delivered a coup de grace with a pistol. As her body went unclaimed, it was given to a university for scientific dissection. And the irony of that hasn't escaped many people who write about Matahari. She was famous for her body when she was alive, yet no one wanted it when she was dead. With her death also came rumours, that she'd blown a kiss at her executioners or even stripped in front of them saying that no one would dare damage a body so beautiful. I'd say these are arguably posthumous attempts at discrediting Matahari and denying her personhood, because instead of facing the firing squad bravely, she commodifies her body as if that's all she ever did or was ever good for. Also, she was tied to the post. How are you going to take your clothes off if you're tied to the post? Pole dance. Oh, God, no. There have been many films and shows made about or featuring Matahari over the past hundred years. One early example, a German silent film from 1927. It's been lost. It probably just caught fire or the Nazis didn't like it. Nazis don't like most things. A second film starring Greta Garbo was made in Hollywood in 1931. This one was heavily censored due to the sexy dances Garbo as Hari did during the film. 
implied sex scenes, and it also softened the story somewhat, focusing a lot more on the romance between Hari and Demaslov. But the film was still a massive hit for the studio. A Franco-Italian production came out early in the 1960s and positioned Matahari as an actual double agent, working for the Germans but pretending to work for the French. Another film in the 1980s put her in a love triangle because you know what her life was missing? A love triangle. Team Jacob. You're wrong. There was even a musical loosely based on her life produced in 1970 starring Julie Andrews. It was marketed as a cute spin on the Matahari legend, which I think that says a lot about the approach they took. I mean, you've got to assume they glossed over the sexy dancing here because I cannot imagine Mary Poppins in a bejeweled bra. Malahari has also popped up in more recent pop cultural mainstays. She, or rather her legs, cameo in a Doctor Who online episode from the 11th Doctor era where it's implied she fucks the Doctor because of course she fucking does. She's literally just a pair of legs. I'm sorry, I have a lot of feelings about elements of the 11th Doctor's run. Those feelings are valid and I share them. And we're not going to go into it because we will rant for five hours. Oh my god. And then, as I mentioned earlier, her spirit also shows up in an episode of Charmed, yeah. which I think, like, it's been a while since I've seen it, but it wasn't a terrible portrayal. It does give her some agency. I mean, it, it falls into the problems of Charmed of the era where they're often in skimpy clothes for no apparent reason. But it, it's, it could be worse. I love it could that. be just a pair of legs. So, I missed you know, that I'm Twitter account that was, like, bad Charmed outfits, and it was just, like... It was so good. There have been a couple of mini-series about Matahari as well. One of them, which I did not watch because I respect myself, makes her story very more conventional Hollywood, and her whole dancing career is about getting enough cash together to sue for her daughter's custody. It's a Portuguese-Russian production, so they haven't really got a dog in the fight for historical accuracy. They get their uniforms looking real good, though. I mean, that's the main thing. It's funny, isn't it? The YouTube comments on videos about her all claim she was a double agent, She was innocent. She was a spy for only one side. Yet it seems pretty obvious that she was mostly manipulated for political means in a really horrendous time in Europe. You're right. I can't help but wonder about the motivations behind casting her as a femme fatale versus an innocent waif preyed upon by Ladoux or other political players. I mean, to me, she falls in the middle. Like so many people in the war, she was just trying to get by and do what was best for herself and the person she loved. But then humans are fundamentally threatened by women exerting agency, especially when it comes to sex. Just think of the double standards of slut-shaming versus celebrating male conquests. Honestly, it doesn't really surprise me that the people who sold her story afterwards wanted to undermine her agency by casting her as a double-crossing femme fatale ruled by her all-powerful vagina. Thank you for listening to this, the first episode of Women of War. We hope you enjoyed yourself, learned something, or at least had a chuckle. A special thanks to Evelyne for her help with the French pronunciations and we're very sorry your advice didn't take. I've been Hannah Viney. And I will probably remain Nicola Ritchie. Thanks for listening. Doubtful.